Well, welcome here this evening to our first Consider Lecture for the 2019-2020 school year. It's a, a great privilege to have Dr. Dan Powell with us. And I'm going to call uh, Dr. Imes forward in just a little minute to introduce him, but let's begin our time in prayer, shall we? Our gracious God, we thank you for your servant, Dan. We pray that you would give him your wisdom, your insight, your ability to communicate clearly and powerfully to us his insights from the Old Testament and how that can inform and help us worship you better in spirit and in truth. So we know you are present, and yet we invite you to be present here with us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a quick promo as Dr. Imes comes. Are we going to plug his book? Because I have a copy here that I want to, I want to do this. Um, the content, much of the content, if not all of the content, I assume that we are going to be hearing in uh, Dr. Block's lecture this evening comes from his recently released book, For the Glory of God, Recovering Biblical, a Biblical Theology of Worship. Uh, it has done very, very well. It's found a, a very receptive audience. How many languages is it being translated into? We're on the fourth already. So this is having uh, a, a, quite an international reach, and we are very privileged to have a scholar uh, and someone with such a pastoral heart with us here on our Consider Lectureship podium this evening joining us. So I will turn it over to Dr. Imes, and she'll take it from there. Thank you. Great to see you all this evening. It is a privilege to introduce Dr. Daniel Block once again. If you've been with us in the morning sessions, you know that he's been challenging us to recover a vision for the Old Testament as Christian scripture. And it's been very challenging and very influential. In fact, his influence um, might have seemed some to some to be a bit extreme this morning. He told us to take out our Bibles and tear out a page. Um, I tore one out right away and I had people looking at me, what's happening? He asked us to tear out that blank page that separates the Old and the New Testament um, as a symbolic way of saying the Old Testament is our scripture too. Don't let anything separate us from reading it and receiving it as the word of God to us. So I hope that his influence extends this evening um, to transform the way that we think about worship. Dr. Block was born and raised in Saskatchewan on a farm. And over his 44-year teaching career, uh, it took him from Providence College in Manitoba down to Bethel Seminary in Minneapolis, then Southern Seminary in Kentucky, and then finally to Wheaton College in Illinois, where he supervised PhD students for 12 years. And I had the great privilege of being one of those students and uh, learned everything I could from this man. Um, he's written, you, you've, you've gotten a sense, if you've heard him this week, of how passionately he speaks and how, how, much, uh, how eloquently he speaks. And I want to assure you that that extends to his writings as well. He's an amazing writer. I know because in my 300-page dissertation, I'm pretty sure he rewrote every sentence until it sounded good. And uh, then at the end, he wrote, he said, Carmen, you write so well. And I said, I'm pretty sure you wrote this. <laughs> uh, 
Oh dear. Uh, so we are we are in for a treat tonight, and I hope this whets your appetite. And you'll hop on Amazon and look for his books. He has commentaries on Ezekiel, Deuteronomy, Judges, Ruth, uh, Obadiah, and this book on worship, and then other collections of essays as well. So it's such a privilege to have you here with us. Thank you, Carmen. The privilege is all mine. It's been such a treat to be here and in the presence of guests who are not regularly part of this campus. I need to express my thanks to this institution for the magnificence and uh, warmth with, with which they have uh, put up with me this week and no eggs or tomatoes so far. But then we're not done tonight yet and we'll see what happens. But it has been... A, absolute uh, delight for me to be here. It, time goes by just far too quickly, and tomorrow morning we're, we're done, and then it's off. Uh, and, but we will have gained, I will have gained a whole new appreciation for what God is doing at Prairie, and I praise God for this place, and that it continues to be a beacon of light and uh, of grace and compassion all around the world. Our topic tonight is on corporate worship and invitation to a weekly audience with God. Actually, I do not have this chapter in the book. This, uh, I, I hadn't developed this idea uh, until I was invited to do uh, the topic in another context, and it forced me to focus on uh, a hint at it in the book here and there, uh, but it's not developed in as confusing as a way as you'll have it tonight. <laughs> in any case, uh, in the past, Christians have divided and fought over doctrinal issues, issues like Calvinism versus Arminianism, modes of baptism, speaking in tongues, head coverings, and short sleeves on women's dresses. I can remember those conversations. Did you see her in church this morning? Her elbows were showing. Really? Well, the crisis in the contemporary evangelical church about worship arises largely from the woeful absence of a biblical theology of worship. We have become totally pragmatic and the goal of designing worship services to attract people to fill the building rather than to encourage people to have a meeting with God. If true worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accordance with his will, then we should start by asking the Lord what true worship looks like to him and what his will is with respect to these reverential acts of submission and homage that we engage in in routine and regular corporate worship. Now, if our lives aren't worshipped the other days, six days of the week, nothing we do on the Sunday morning will have any positive influence with God. Let's start there. Life is worship. And if we're not worshiping with our lives, that's why in this, my definition, 
doesn't say anything about the liturgical stuff we do. Life is all of worship, and if that life isn't worship, nothing we do when we gather will matter positively to God in any case. But the problem is, finding an appropriate paradigm for worship under the influence of Bill Hybels and others who began their ministry as youth pastors in the past 40 years in many places, the Sunday morning gatherings of God's people have increasingly become occasions for evangelism and outreach and taken on the flavor of the sorts of concerts that Youth for Christ and other per- parachurch organizations used to sponsor on Friday or Saturday evenings. This kind of worship involves two primary parties, performers at the front who talk and sing about their own devotion to God and an audience of spectators, I'm mixing two metaphors here, who passively observe what comes from the front and increasingly that's what's happening. Appealing for wholehearted and full-bodied participation by what was considered the audience in worship event, Robert Weber has reacted to this paradigm and called for a fundamental shift, which seems to have won the day by by professional worshipists, I've created a word, and peddlers of the worship industry products, and I use those expressions very intentionally. The new paradigm identifies the lay people who gather as the worshipers or performers, the worshipers, leaders as prompters, and God as the audience. For support for this view, they appeal to no less a figure than Søren Kierkegaard, who in the 19th century proposed that corporate worship is more like a theatrical performance. Uh, I, I don't have time to read the whole quotation, but it ends with, in the most earnest sense, this is Kierkegaard, uh, God is the critical theater goer who looks on to see how the lines are spoken and how they are listened to, Hence, here the customary audience is wanting. The speaker then is the prompter, and the listener stands openly before God. The listener, if I may say so, is the actor who in all truth acts before God. Under the influence of this metaphor, worship leaders and musicians especially fondly speak of Playing before an audience of one. And you can find this all over the place. An audience of one. And of course, uh, you know, you're all that I want, you're all that I need, Lord. I'm singing for an audience of one. The world, it fades away as I gaze upon your face. I'm living for an audience of one. And though a fool I'll seem, I'll worship my, I will worship my king. And of course, Os Guinness has said, I live before an audience of one before others. I have nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to prove. Now, I can live with that. I live before an audience of one. But corporate worship using that metaphor is highly problematic. And let me talk about two problems here. First, it involves a generic mistake. 
the way people in the industry of worship have applied Os Guinness's use of the phrase, audience of one, to corporate worship, renders the word audience meaningless. It suggests that God is a spectator whose approval we must seek in our corporate worship performances. However, strictly speaking, audience and spectator involve two generically different events. The former involves oral, i.e. aural, A-U-R-A-L, verbal communication, while the spectator involves physical, visual performance. Now, theater usually involves both an oral and a visual dimension, but this is not necessarily the case in worship. Certain forms of worship, singing, preaching, giving testimony, prayer, are primarily speech acts, but I insist that worship involves an audience that hears, but that audience has nothing to do with Kierkegaard's model at all. It is totally upside down. In my mind, and more serious, it disregards the models of worship. These models of worship disregard totally the biblical image, which has much more in common with the paradigm of an audience with a superior that spectators to people's than spectators to people's action or even their speech. Now tonight I will speak of a meeting with such a person of extraordinary status as an audience with that person. As in, he had an audience with a pope. Or she had an audience with Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. An individual or a group may request an audience with a superior, or the superior may, on his or her own initiative, invite someone who is socially inferior to an audience, but it always involves the superior granting the audience. Even when the host tries to put the guest at ease, the latter must behave according to strict rules of protocol established by long tradition or modified by the host currently in office. In 19, uh, 2016, prior to the premiering of the Netflix series The Crown, Vogue magazine website published a list of seven rules on how to interact with Queen Elizabeth II should one be invited to an audience with her. First, when greeting the Queen, men should give a neck bow, tilting their heads only, while women traditionally curtsy. When addressing the Queen, you begin with Your Majesty, and in conversation, you refer to her as Ma'am. Third, during a formal dinner, Take the queen's lead. Stand when she stands, except for when she's speaking. Stop eating when she eats. Wait until she sits to take your seat, um, and, and, and then so on and so forth. Four, never turn your back to the queen. Five, when meeting the queen, there is a no-touch rule, meaning that you should never make physical, first physical contact by touching her arm or shaking her hand. Only shake her hand if she offers, and even then, it's without a tight grip and little motion. Six, 
initiating conversation is generally discouraged. Also, stay away from personal questions, especially in regard to queen, the queen's grandsons, princes William and Harry. And seven, always bring a gift to present to the queen. Those are the rules of protocol. An audience with a superior transpires at the superior's invitation on the superior's terms and with objectives determined by the superior. How different is this image represented, is the image represented in the lyrics of many songs we sing today? See, for example, here. This is your house by Don Mon. As we gather in this place today, Holy Spirit, come and have your way. Have your way as we lay aside our desires. Sweep across our hearts with holy fire. Have your way. This is your house, your home. We welcome you. Lord, we welcome you. This is your house, your home. We welcome you today. As we offer up our hearts and lives, let them be a living sacrifice. Have your way. Be glorified in everything we do. Be glorified in everything you do. Have your way. As we praise, O Lord, draw near. It's your voice we long to hear. We welcome you today. We welcome you today. Really? Or, we have come. I want to follow you with all my heart. I worship you, God. We have come to give you glory. We have come to give you praise. You're welcome in this place. You're welcome in this place. You're welcome in this place. Have your way. Have your way. Have your way. You see what we're doing? There are three or four major problems here. One, the literary register is far too low. I want to follow you. You do not speak to God that way. Have you ever done a study of prayers in the Bible? Especially public prayers. They're always in an elevated register. Now, you can do this in the privacy of your own room or out of frustration in the narratives in Scripture where you talk about personal prayers. We get frustrated with God and we do this, but not when you're in corporate worship, never. More serious though, the self-laudatory tone and grammar is offensive to any sovereign, superior. You're singing about yourself. We should not sing about our love for Jesus. We should sing about his love for us. That's the song. Only God can tell whether our love for Jesus is genuine, and it may well be a total fake song. And then, of course, conceptually, it is totally flawed. We have invaded his sacred space. We call it his house. And then we have the chutzpah to invite him in. Who do we think we are? And who is inviting, inviting whom to an audience with whom? Whenever we treat God as the audience, we have occupied the throne. And we treat him as our inferior. Indeed, in response, we sing to God. We do that. But tragically, too often, the songs are about ourselves, our love for God, our praise, our commitment, our actions. We bow down and we worship you, Lord. We bow down. No, we don't. I mean, not only is it false, but you're preoccupied with... This is narcissism. 
You're singing about your own piety when we should be singing about God's amazing love. And our gestures in in worship are not expressions of humility and submission, but of entitlement and arrogance. In our culture, we have no gestures of submission and homage anymore. How do you show respect? You have to stretch to think about some ways in which we do this. Well, there are a, a few problems. What then is the solution? And I think it is grasping the biblical paradigm of worship. I propose a shocking solution. Let's go to the scriptures. Rather than contemporary culture or some venerable philosopher like Kierkegaard, Ultimately, if true worship involves reverential human acts of submission before God, the divine servant, sovereign, in response to his revelation of himself and in accordance with his will, rather than telling God about what we're doing for him, maybe we should ask him, what pleases you? What does he think about worship and what paradigm he offers for acceptable worship? Well, let's go to a few texts for starters. There's lots more we could say, but that clock was invented by the devil, and he will take charge again tonight, and I know that. But uh, we hurry on. In summary form, the first grand worship event recorded in Scripture is in Exodus 19 to 20, which is one long worship text, where it starts with the Lord's speech to Moses, or that he is supposed to tell the people, you've seen for yourselves what I did to the Egyptians, how I brought, uh, ca- uh, what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall serve me as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And if you look at that grand Exodus event, you will notice how totally oral it is. The Lord said to Moses, look, I am coming to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe in you. And Moses spoke and God answered him with a voice. And God spoke all these words saying, and all the people experienced the sounds and the lightning flashes. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. Don't have God speak to us or we're dead. They're terrified. This kind of close contact. They've had no experience with this God. This kind of close contact with God could be lethal. Deuteronomy remembers this event in chapter 4, verse 10. Remember the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, and the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words. It is the gracious act of God that he actually speaks. And it is a gracious act of God that he lets us listen. It's all grace. Nothing is to be taken for granted or as an entitlement. But why do we need to hear his words that we may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children also? 
Well, and then he, uh, he goes on, and you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of the heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form, only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, that is, he commanded you to do the ten words, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. It's an amazing event, but it is a worship event. In this case, the king charges his envoy Moses to invite the people to assemble before him. For three days, the people prepared for the event by consecrating themselves, ritual washing, and fasting. The sound of a heavenly herald's trumpet announced the emergence of the king. The king is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding, and now his face I see. That's what's happening here. The king is coming out of his heavenly throne room and he will step down on terra firma for a few minutes or a, few, a, few, a, a short while. Four, at the sound of the trumpet, Moses signaled to the people to come and meet God and they stood at attention awaiting the king's arrival. You never sit when the king shows up. You stand. The king appeared in all his glory, accompanied by fire and smoke and earthquake. He warned the people not to violate the boundaries of protocol. They put a fence around the mountain. He addressed the assembly, and the people responded to their audience with the king with fear and trembling. Through this envoy, the king reassured the people with a statement of the significance of this event, and the people heeded the words of the king's envoy and stood at a distance while he returned to the king's presence as a representative for them. Well, this is worship at Sinai. What a moment. I wish I could have been there. I'm sure I would have been shaking in my boots because they had no experience with God in this way before. But it was a moment in which he brought them to himself. Did you know that God did not call the Israelites primarily to keep the law? He called them to be his people. And he invited them graciously into his presence. That is worship. Now, Deuteronomy has a lot to say about worship as well. I used to think that what happens in Deuteronomy when it says 22 or 23 times, the Lord will choose a place to set his name. And there you may come. And there you may worship. I used to think that this really meant that the Sinai experience was to be made accessible to the people in perpetuity. But it, I've changed my mind. The Sinai was a one-off deal. The worship that is envisaged in the book of Deuteronomy as regular service was not a terrifying moment. It was a moment of fellowship with the Lord. Chapter 12, verses 5 to 7. But you may bring, make pilgrimages. Your translation has this all in the imperative. But you must make pilgrimages to the place where the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there to establish it. To that place you must take, uh, you must go, and there you must take your burnt offerings. It's not what it says. It's that you must come. Bring your offerings. Changes everything. 
God is inviting the people into his presence for regular worship. There you bring your tithes and your offerings and uh, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families must eat. No, may eat. This is an invitation. It's, it's not a charge. You may eat and you may celebrate in everything you have put your hand to because Yahweh, your God, has blessed you. God chooses a place on this earth for his people to come for their uh, fellowship in his presence. It's a positive picture of worship. Moses invites Israelites to come to enter the place where the Lord lives and bring your offerings to him. He invites them to eat there in the presence of the Lord. He invites Israelites to celebrate the blessing of the Lord on their, on their work. And his invitation offers all Israelites, all Israelites, access to the presence of God. Men, women, children, aliens, whoever, y'all come. There's no segregation in Israelite worship in the First Testament. Did you notice that? When you get to the New Testament and to Herod's temple, it is Herod's temple, it's a political statement. He's trying to curry the favor of the Jews, and he designs it exactly in his own way complete with a court of the Gentiles and a court of women. There's no such thing in the First Testament. It's y'all come. How else could Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, be admitted to the house of the Lord the way she is? No, it's y'all come. There is no segregation here. And But... Where is the audience with God? How does that work? Well, we don't actually have much to say about that from Scripture, but the hint comes at chapter 31, 11 to 13. We're going to come back and talk to that, uh, about that in a few minutes. I want to jump ahead to Psalm 95, which is used in context of worship conferences and lectures all over the place. Many exploit this psalm. It, uh, it, you know, uh, the way many exploit it is often flawed for many reasons. But this passage, this text, offers the most impressive picture of worship as an audience with the Lord, the divine King, in all of scriptures. I know that's too small for you to read. We'll come back and get it bigger for you. But I want you to notice the structure of this psalm. It divides into three parts. There is the call for true and authentic worship, verses 1 to 5. There is the nature of true and authentic worship, 6 to 7b. And then there's the evidence of true and authentic worship in 7c all the way to the end. It's a brilliant psalm. But as we move through it, we observe three dramatic shifts in mood. In the first part... Now you can read it. We uh, in the first part, the psalmist pulls out all the stops. That's an old metaphor which we used to were, use with reference to organs, didn't we? He pulls out all the stops, calling on his fellow believers to shout enthusiastically to the Lord, to approach him with thanksgiving, and to shout triumphantly to him with psalms of praise. It's unrestrained. But when you get to part two, 
The tone changes. The mood is different. The excitement and enthusiasm of verses 1 and 2 give way to a controlled and reasoned appeal in verses 6 to 7. The gushing geyser has been replaced by a quiet flowing stream. And then in part 3, whoops, we'll, well, we'll come back to part 3 later. In part 3, uh, the tone becomes downright somber and serious. Now, uh, worshipists and musicians have often used this psalm to justify their loud music at the beginning of a Sunday morning service. And even to define worship essentially as praise, the musical nuance uh, here, however, is muted, being reflected in only a single word, zemiroth, in verse 2, which apparently refers to a psalm of praise, but strictly speaking, that is not yet a musical note. But at least, uh, but uh, it, it starts there. In verses 1 to 5, the psalmist has invited us to join in celebration because the Lord has invited us to an audience with himself. This is what excites him. Imagine the scene as the worshipers are climbing Mount Zion to the temple. But technically, this is not the worship. This is anticipation of worship. If you read the text, the worship does not begin until verse 6, where he uses three expressions for worship in the Scripture. The psalmist calls on the people to prostrate themselves before the Lord. Hishtachawah. Worship the Lord. That means to get down on your knees. Then he's, if you don't like that, he says, prostrate yourselves, bow down, and kneel. I, I, I think he's trying to make a point. Get down. Express your submission and homage. These are the words for worship in the First Testament. And in the New Testament, proskuneo carries the same meaning. These are the gestures of worship in response to an invitation to an audience with a king. Physical expressions of submission and homage before a superior. That's what we do. Well, for all the talk in evangelical churches about worship, the one thing that the word means, both in Hebrew and Greek, we never do. Get down on our knees. We bow down and we worship the Lord. No, we don't. And we think by saying it, that's virtually doing it. No, it's not. This psalm involves court language, describing how we would have responded to an invitation to an audience with Solomon or Nebuchadnezzar. But we have a very limited vocabulary, either verbal or nonverbal, for expressing submission and homage. Instead of falling before the great king, we barge into his presence and with hands high, here I am, Lord, aren't you lucky? I could be golfing. You should be impressed. Really? Doesn't sound like this at all. But then the psalm reaches, uh, well, this is what it means. Everybody else knows that, and our Muslim friends know this. But we say, well, that's Muslim. Yeah, but it is the appropriate disposition in the presence of God. In our churches, we used to do this. When I was growing up, 
Wednesday prayer meeting, when you prayed, we always got down on our knees. We did. That's not just empty motion. It has meaning. But we have lost, I'm not saying we got to legislate doing that, but we must find some way of expressing that same thing with our bodies. I don't know what they are. We don't have many ways of doing this. But the psalm reaches its climax in the, last, in the last colon of verse 7 and the first of verse 8. Did you hear this? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now we are ready. Now we're ready. The psalmist identifies two illustrations from Israel's past, Massah and Meribah, where instead of listening to this voice, they tested the Lord's fidelity to his word, even though they had seen his actions for uh, years uh, on, his on their behalf. They, but they dared to act against him. The consequences of listening of not listening to the king when he spoke were disastrous. The king disowned them and saw to it that they never reached their destination, but were buried in the desert. That's the evidence of true, and true worship. True worship is not about, well, didn't you enjoy the mood? Or whatever else. We got into it today. That's not the proof. That's easy. We can work that up, we who are entertainers. We can work that up. The proof is in the life. What happens when we leave? One more text, Ecclesiastes. The notion of worship as an audience with God surfaces in a surprising passage in Ecclesiastes. This is in the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature has very little to say about what we do in church or what they did in the temple, or in their sacrifices, in their ritual. Very little to say, but here we have it, Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Approach God to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. See the alternatives? Who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick to speak and do not impulsively blabber anything before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. So keep your words to a minimum. Who's in charge here anyhow? This text is surprising because it comes in the context of wisdom. The first principle of wisdom is fear the Lord and hear we see it, as was the case with an audience with an earthly monarch. When God inv invites his people to worship, what he has to say to them is always more important than what worshipers say to him. Did you get that? You know, in these songs, oh Lord, be pleased with our worship. We're commanding him to accept what we're doing. Who do we think we are? The test of his pleasure is what happened yesterday and the day before and all the rest of that. Well, let's go to the New Testament. 
The New Testament has little to say about corporate liturgical worship. This is probably why we fight about these things. Apart from the Lord's Supper, the one thing it tells us to do regularly, and you have it in three of the Gospels and then in 1 Corinthians 11. But here the focus is entirely on the object of worship, that is, whom we worship. Although the words of institution are indeed few, the nonverbal message is loud and clear. In his prologue to the gospel, John reminds his readers emphatically that Jesus embodies the glory, grace, and fidelity of the Lord, the God of Israel, a fact the synoptic gospels highlight dramatically by their accounts of Jesus' transfiguration. A similar notion underlies the conclusion to the hymn to Christ, Carmen Christi, in Philippians 2. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here I think we should read Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. The homage and obeisance due to Yahweh in Psalm 95.6 is due to Jesus as well. The book of Revelation comes the closest the New Testament uh, to offering New Testament counterparts to the worship of the Lord in the First Testament. But the Im image becomes more obviously Trinitarian or more accurately Binitarian. Have you ever noticed that no one in the Bible worships the Holy Spirit? Nobody prays to the Holy Spirit. Nobody praises the Holy Spirit. Nobody talks to the Holy Spirit. And I sometimes think he must be embarrassed with the attention we give him. Because true worship of the Spirit happens when we let the Spirit do his work in our lives. And let him point us to Jesus and whatever else. But uh, the Holy Spirit is missing from the dramatic scenes like this one and any, everywhere else. In the first of these texts here, Revelation 5, 9 to 14, uh, here we observe God, apparently the Father, seated on a throne, an angelic herald announcing the arrival of the lion, David, the lamb. He's got all these titles. But the lamb doesn't speak. The sight of him standing there as if slain and receiving a scroll from the one enthroned impels the observers in the king's court to fall down and break out in a three-part song. Verses 9 to 10, verse 12, and then verse 13. 9 to 10, we have, uh, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and break his seals, for you were slaughtered, and with your blood have ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and people, and you've caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then verse 12, and they sang a mighty chorus. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then, blessing and honor, glory and power be to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now, there's no reference here to them speaking, except this is such a visual speech that you don't need the verbal. 
but how different is the song they sing from the inane lyrics of so much of what passes for worship music today. Here there is no babbling of self-laudatory declarations of what the worshipers are doing, nor the stringing together of trivialities. The literary idiom rises to the heavenly register and the focus is entirely away from the worshiper's response and on to the one who is worshipped. My song shall be of Jesus, the precious Lamb of God who gave himself a ransom and washed me with his blood. It's of him, not about my love for him. Amazing images of worship. Now, let's ask one more question. These texts, including the First Testament texts, don't, don't have much to say about how God actually spoke in worship in First Testament times or in New Testament times. What are we going to do about that? If worship is an audience with God and God speaks, how does he speak? Well, our first impulse might be to go to Isaiah 6, where the 8th century B.C. prophet recounts the moment of his worship in the temple. He falls down on his face and says, Oy vey! I'm done, finished, kaput. He's seen the Lord in all his glory. But he's a lone worshiper. That is not corporate worship. So it's, it's not quite what we're talking about here. This is not an ordinary routine worship event. The Lord, the Lord speaks, but he's not talking to him. The Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And what does Isaiah do? <laughs> the Lord is talking to his court. That's not Isaiah. And Isaiah is so excited. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. He, he interrupts that heavenly conversation and the Lord accepts it as his, his uh, true worship. Information on how the Lord addressed uh, the Israel when they came for an audience with him is limited. It appears that so long as Moses was with the Israelites, his instruction was accepted as the revelation of God. The book of Deuteronomy is cast as one lengthy worship service. It's a Russian worship service. Have you ever been there? You go and you're asked to preach in Russia. You might be the second or the first or the third preacher of the morning. They regularly have three. And in this worship service, you've got first sermon up to chapter, uh, end, end of four, then the second sermon, five to 11, third sermon, 12 to 26, and then picks up again in 28, the fourth sermon, 29 to 30, and then you've got a closing hymn and the benediction of the tribes, and we're out of here. This is a worship service, an extended one, probably happened over a week or two or whatever. We don't know that this is all that Moses said, but the book is cast in the form of Moses' farewell addressed to his people, like Jesus does in the upper room with his disciples, or Paul does with the Ephesian elders. He knows I'm not going to see you again. And so here Moses is pleading as the pastor with his people, stay true to God. And all the way through this book, the text emphasizes Moses spoke according to all that the Lord commanded him. 
He has a clear consciousness of being inspired by God so that what Moses says, God says, or should we flip it, what God says, Moses says. Well, this means that so long as Moses is around, we can do that. God is talking through him. He's a prophet. But what happens when he's gone? Oh, the answer is simple. The answer is found in chapter 31. Now we will read this. Then Moses transcribed this Torah, and that means all the speeches that he had just delivered. He put them into writing, handed it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to the elders. Later he will say, you're to store this right next to the Ark of the Covenant. This is canonical from the beginning. It is intended as a canonical text. But then he says, at the end of every seven years, at the assigned time in the year of release, at the festival booth, Sukkot, when all Israel comes to see the face of the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this Torah before all Israel in their hearing, and little ones and the sojourner within your towns. Uh, oh, I missed something here. It, I don't have it all highlighted. It is there. But uh, your male and female servants, men and women, uh, sons and your daughters, they're all there in this. And the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and keep all the words of this Torah by doing them. And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. Did you hear the emphasis on hearing? This is about an audience with God. When you hear the Torah, you hear the voice of God. That's the assumption. This is God speaking. We, he, we have here what I call the Deuteronomic formula for life. Read that they may hear, that they may learn, that they may fear, that they may obey, that they may live. That's the point. An audience with God is necessary that we might live. Hearing the voice of God is necessary. We could turn this around and look at it in terms of what Paul does in Romans chapter 10 by when he asks, how shall they hear without a preacher and how shall they preach unless they are sent and whatever? You know that text. Well, here, how shall they hear if no one reads? How shall they learn if they do not hear? How shall they fear if they do not learn? How shall they obey if they do not fear? And how shall they live if they do not obey? We should actually have reversed that. How shall they live if they don't obey? How shall they obey if they do not fear? How shall they fear if they do not learn? How shall they learn if they do not hear? And how shall they hear if no one reads? This is access to the mind of God through the Word of God. Hearing the Torah. How about later scriptures? Well, we could go to 1 Kings 20, 2 Kings 22, where they discover the Torah in the temple that had been lost a long time, or Malachi 2, or Nehemiah 8, my favorite worship text. The people come, if those of you who are pastors, don't you wish you had a, con a congregation like this? They come to Ezra and they say, won't you read the Torah for us? We want to hear the Torah. 
And they gather all everybody, men, women, exactly as it's instructed here. It's intentionally fulfilling this. They gather everybody to the gathering, and Ezra ceremoniously rises, and he opens up the scroll, not a book. They didn't have books then yet. They hadn't been invented. It's a scroll, and all the people stood. Why? You never sit when you're invited to an audience with God. God doesn't speak in the Bible. God doesn't speak to people sitting down. When Ezekiel sees the vision of the Lord, he's falling down on the face, on his face, and the Lord says, "Stand that I may speak with you." That's the way it works. And this is where we get our practice in some circles of rising when I preach in our congregation uh, in, in the morning worship service, I have the people stand regularly because God is addressing us and we need to express our homage and submission to his word. How about the New Testament? Worship in the New Testament and uh, hearing the voice of God. Well, it, it's similar. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, until I arrive, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. What's he thinking of? Probably not his epistles. He's thinking about the First Testament, of which primacy uh, priority of place is the Torah. It always starts there. Paul is trained as a rabbi, and to him, that's where it starts. Everything else is commentary on Torah. But then, Colossians 4, 16, suggests that now we're moving away from only the First Testament text. He says, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So the letters that are being written by the apostles have become worship texts. Have you ever noticed that when Paul begins his epistles, he, either, he begins with either Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ? And that means an officially authorized spokesman for God, for Christ. So that what he writes, Christ says. And just like Moses, he is uh, inspired by God. And this audience involves hearing the word read. Well, uh, I must hurry on to the conclusion. Uh, otherwise, we will admit the devil has won the day. Implications for the use of scriptures in worship today. There is so much we could say about this. But although the scriptures don't actually prescribe how we should use them in worship, a biblical theology of worship demands that evangelicals devote more time and attention to reading them in communal worship than is currently practiced. When we gather to worship, they heed, they heed God's invitation to a corporate audience with Him, not with a pastor. As noted earlier, in an audience with a superior, what the superior here has to say is to those who are gathered is always more important than what those who have gathered have to say to the superior. In, 
in the church, as in ancient Israel, the scriptures represent the normative means by which God talks to the whole congregation. And they provide the only sure foundation of belief and practice. And so it's imperative that reading the scriptures be given the highest place in worship. <laughs> really? That is swimming up the Niagara. Well, three or four ideas. First, evangelicals must rediscover that in hearing the scriptures, worshipers hear the voice of God. Did you know that? Unfortunately, if you want to hear lots of scripture these days, you have to go to the liberal churches. Because their lectionaries prescribe longer texts than we do. But in our churches, one or two verses and that's it. And we read them badly. And disinterestedly, we're eager to get, the people need to hear what I have to say about these verses. Have we thought about that? The chutzpah. Second, evangelicals need to rediscover the transforming power of the scriptures. We have a low view of scripture. You can tell it by the way we preach. We, can't, we don't trust the scriptures to do their work. The transforming power of the Scripture is assumed in Moses' charge to the Levites to read the Torah that the people may hear, that they may learn, that they might fear, that they might walk in the ways of the Lord, that they might live. The Scriptures, yes. Elsewhere, Moses had declared that people don't live by physical food, but by whatever comes out of God's mouth. That's the source of life. And we need to rediscover that Despite our high creedal affirmations of high views of Scripture, the relative absence of Bible reading in our churches is pathetic. Third, evangelicals must rediscover uh, the transform. Well, I should have said one other thing. Did you know that the Scriptures weren't written primarily to be preached? Did you hear that? They were written to be heard. They are the sermon. Comment is needed only if there's a distance between the audience and the text. It's God's word that needs to get through, not ours. Uh, third, evangelicals need to rediscover the joy of a communal or Catholic universal reading and hearing of Scripture. Hearing Scripture in worship is a communal and covenantal enterprise. And that's why we need to get rid of first-person first singular pronouns in our worship liturgies. We're not here as I, we're here as we, if anything. And this is a communal moment. It is not a private moment. That is for your closet. This is where we are all together hearing the same word and in communion with the saints who have preceded us, we are united as a single Catholic church. Third, evangelicals need to rediscover the joy. No, no we said that. Uh, evangelicals, uh, worship leaders, need to rediscover the lost art of expository reading of Scripture. As I said before, we read so badly. And when we're reading 
and First Testament texts, we read especially badly. But we need to learn to read it so that people get the point without our comments. When we lived in Louisville, we had a neighbor who was exactly the same age, but uh, about the time we moved there, he had built his last house. He was a developer, builder, and he was an alcoholic, and it was taking its toll on his life. And shortly before we moved from Louisville, he actually passed away. And we established quite a close relationship with them. I gave him a copy of the New Living Translation, and, and uh, he, they tre treasured it uh, greatly. And a week or so before he died, he said, uh, Dan, will you come and read from your Bible? I had had a hand in the New Living Translation, and that was special to him. And so I read some with him. But then he passed away, and then at the, at the uh, memorial service in a very liberal Presbyterian church, uh, his, his wife, his widow, Carol, asked if I would read Scripture. She said, I'm going to pick the text. She picked 72 verses from the New Living Translation. She picked them, and I just read without any comment. And after that, a half a dozen people came either to Ellen, my wife, or to me and said, that's the best sermon I've ever heard. And that's it. That's what should happen. People should hear the voice of God in the reading of Scripture. Well, what will this take? Well, it means we devote more time to reading Scripture, not just a verse or two, whole texts, whole books. Uh, next Easter, I'm going to be back in Australia for a weekend conference at the Katoomba Conference Center, and they've asked me to come and give four addresses on the book of Ruth on the uh, theme of kindness. And what they're going to do before we start the whole series, they're going to have a dramatic reading of the whole book of Ruth. And everybody's going to hear the whole thing. That's how we're going to start. So that any comments we say about the book have context. And, and, and I'm already looking forward to that meeting with God. When I get back to Wheaton on Sunday... I am, I'm teaching a class there on Sunday mornings in our church. Uh, at the We have three services, but during the 9.30 service, I have a, a, a class, an adult community fellowship group. We have 200-plus people in a class on Ezekiel. Can you imagine what's wrong with these people? But our agenda for Sunday is Ezekiel 16. Have you read that lately? It is arguably the most troubling chapter in all of Scripture. What are we going to do? 63 verses. I'm going to read the whole thing. And then I'm going to stand back and I will ask, what did God say to you? What did you hear? And then the next three weeks we'll come back and unpack this. Ezekiel needs preaching because the the message isn't obviously clear to people. But then, having done that, next week, we'll come back and preach the first 14 verses or whatever. 
But we need to read Paul's epistles in their entirety, including Romans, in one city. The book of Revelation was written to be heard in one sitting or standing. And by the time you've experienced that, you are down on your face. Whoa! Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. We're all there. That's what should happen. Second, we... uh, We need to devote more time. We need to promote an atmosphere of reverence when reading the Scripture. We need to develop expository reading skills. Read slowly. Read smoothly. Read with passion. Pause. Let people think. Do people see the sincerity in me? Do I consciously complement the aesthetic and literary qualities of the passage by reading it appropriately and whatever? We, we do this so badly, but we never even get any thought to it. This is a sacred moment. It is the closest they get on the Sunday morning to hear the voice of God. And we need to make that voice clear. We need to develop yeah, reading skills. We, uh, a whole list of these. I think you have these in your, uh, in your notes, and then we'll be done we need to develop creative ways of communicating Scripture, like you know, dramatic readings and whatever else. My friends, it's time we end the famine for the Word of God. It's time we initiated a famine for the words of the preacher. It's not about us, those of us who stand behind this pulpit. They don't need to be impressed with our preaching. Get out of the way. That's why, for me, I'm an old fogey. But the bigger the pulpit, the better for me. Because the more of me it hides, the better chance they have of being, not being distracted from hearing the voice of God. But we have lost this completely. We think it's about the pastor connecting with the congregation. Well, it is, but not primarily. We're just mouthpieces for somebody else who's trying to get through to the congregation. Get out of the way. Let the Word do its work and let the transformation happen. There's so much more we could say, but we must close. You've had enough. You're tired. Unless people have a meeting with God We've wasted our time. This is about an audience with God, my friends. Not about an audience with us. And whenever we stand before the people as spokesmen for God, our knees should shake, not with nervousness before the crowd, but with trepidation. Am I representing God well? We are just spokesmen for Him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in Jesus Christ, the supreme word, incarnate word. But We thank you that you have given us a written record of him in his pre-incarnation activities and in his post-incarnation work and ministry. We thank you for the revelation What a gift, what a grace. Pagans don't have this. 
They know they've sinned, but they don't know what the sin is. They know that gods are offended, but they don't know which God. And they know that something has to be done, but they don't know what it is. But you have spoken to us. You have revealed to us a way of forgiveness and communion. You've called us to yourself. What a privilege. May we respond with appropriate contrition, submission, and homage and gratitude for the glory of your great name alone. We ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Dan. That has, this has been a, a rich one hour, and now it's our turn to be able to ply you with some questions, given all that, that sort of rich banquet that you have laid out in front of us on corporate worship. And because I'm, I'm largely a, well, I'm from one of those liberal denominations that reads for the common lectionary. So I, I was really on side with much of <laughs> with what you were saying. And, uh, but I'll, I'll uh, take any hands that we have. We got about 20 minutes here for, for questions. And I've got a roving mic here so that everybody else can hear your question when you ask. So if you would like to pose a question or comment or ask Dan, to comment on anything that he raised and maybe would like a little bit more detail, here is your opportunity. Maybe while you're formulating your questions, I'll get to you, Rick. Here, as I was thinking about this, my, the, um, the little angel, he, I won't call him a demon on my shoulder, was sort of saying, do evangelicals need a prayer book? Yes. Uh, if I'm asked to pray publicly, mm -hmm. my voice is intended not as a private voice, but it's on behalf of the people in the presence of God and his witnesses. The Anglican Book of Common Prayer is a great... I'm Mennonite. So but, am I. We're but, both Mennonite well, brethren both roots. So. <laughs> both my kids are Anglicans. I, we, we parented poorly. <laughs> but in any case, that, I mean, the Psalms help us greatly mm -hmm. in knowing appropriate language for prayer. Have you ever done a study of biblical prayers? Not just in the Psalms. But, you know, a, a little while ago, there was this book on Jabesh. Yes. Yeah. What was it called? The Prayer of Jabez. The Prayer of Jabez. The Prayer of Jabez. I wish I had thought of that. <laughs> the guy doesn't have to work another day in his life. Except it's pathetic. <laughs> there are so many prayers in the book of Chronicles that are just loaded with content that is not the fertility religion that the commentator of that prayer was pushing. Read David's prayers in the books of Chronicles. Fabulous. And they give us a model for our public prayers. 
This is not private conversation with God. That you do in your closet. And he listens to however you feel. <laughs> but this is on behalf of the community. And the, the Book of Common Prayer, I always write out my prayers when I'm praying publicly on behalf of the community. People used to tell me and when I was growing up, well, that doesn't leave any room for the Holy Spirit. Really? Isn't the Holy Spirit guiding us 24 hours a day and 60 minutes in the hour and whatever else? And in, don't, shouldn't we take it's the privilege of speaking on behalf of the people to God? That is such an honor. Mm -hmm. What language does God want us to use when we're in his presence? I think that's important. Yes. Thank you, Dan. Yes. I think I need more time to formulate my thought. <laughs> okay. I'm looking for hands here. This isn't an auction sale. You don't have to bid. You just have to ask a question. Eggs or tomatoes or <laughs> pineapples? Oh, no. <laughs> it's not a trick question. I'm thinking about lament and how we don't do it corporately almost ever. Oh. And I'm wondering, um, you said that we should pray with a we, not an I, yeah. when we're in corporate worship. Yeah. Have you seen good models of corporate lament? When is it appropriate? How, does, how do we shape it? The answer to that last one is no. Let me give you the, the opposite. The, the week of 9-11, you remember that? I was flying to Kansas City every Sunday for 16 weeks to preach in a large church. And the, they had three services. The first service was always down in a little chapel for people who liked more intimate. At 8 o'clock we met for a small chapel uh, down there. And then uh, when we came up out of that, they would already have started the second service upstairs in big church. But the week of 9-11, I always did my sermon preparation on Monday. And you know what happened on Tuesday, didn't you? Don't you? I, I know exactly where we were. I know we were. Uh, but in any case, the Lord wrestled with me all week about what to say pastorally to the congregation. Finally, Friday after supper, I always flew out Saturday morning, the Lord won, and I went down to my study, and I, a whole new sermon uh, came out of that. But I get to the church, and I come into the sanctuary from down below where we had a nice, solemn service. And, and the, the music minister hadn't made one change in the repertoire and we got to the top I, I got up there and I heard this raucous band totally inappropriate in that moment and he said let's praise the Lord anyhow shame on you there's nothing pastoral in that these people didn't come here to praise they came to weep Attendance that Sunday all across the country was 40% higher than any regular Sunday. They wanted a word from God in their grief, and we didn't let them. 
that sacrilege. We must let people weep every Sunday morning, guaranteed 25%, 30% of your people have had a horrible week. And they want a chance to weep. And we need to weep with them. But no, we think it's about creating a happy mood. No, it's not. It's about people connecting with God and hearing God minister to them. We don't let that. And we forget that for the, in the Psalms, for, there are, for every psalm of praise, there are two of lament. Think about that. But we're not allowed to do that. Praise the Lord anyhow. That's awful. No, we need to do this better. Another question. Yes, sir. I'll get around to you, Rick. Mark, just beat you by a hair here. How do we bring back the sense of um, reverence? We seem to be very casual in our approach. And, you know, Jesus has solved all our problems for us. And the Holy Spirit is, you know, there. Yeah. And we've lost that sense of reverence. And, I mean, what's, how do we get past that? How do we get past that? I, I, I don't want to be misinterpreted, and I'm not trying to be trivial or silly. But there's a sense in which when the Lord choose the, chose the incarnation as the means of getting through to us, that was a gamble. What are you going to do with that? Jesus is God and Jesus is man. And what happens is we have made him primarily one of us. And we forget what John says in his prologue. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the same thing that was said of Yahweh at Mount Sinai is true of Jesus. We forget that. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, you know. Uh, how do we get back? And I think hearing the voice of God, hearing scripture, hearing scripture well, and 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 we who stand before God's people embodying reverence. I think we've lost that. We've made this uh, popularity contest or we are MCs of an entertainment moment. No, we're not. We are ushers into the presence of God and we are the voice of God. And I think we have no higher calling than to stand before them embodying the fear of of the Lord, which is not fright, it's trusting awe. It starts, it, it starts with me, and I want people to see in me the gravitas of ministry. This is not like you know, playing kindergarten games. This is a weighty privilege and it's a weighty burden that we carry. And if we are asked to represent the Lord before the people, 
that's representing him to them. And I think we have to rediscover the biblical vocabulary of awe and reverence. It's gone. It is gone. We're casual about everything. I mean, we have casual Friday at work and whatever else. You know, we don't wear ties anymore. I'm, I will wear a tie on Sunday when I am teaching my class because this is being recorded, video recorded, and sent to China. And their definitions of respect and awe drive what I'm doing in my... And besides, we have lots of business people and others in the class who dress up all the time and they think... When we, if we do it for work, we surely have to do it here. And so, you know, dressing down is a bigger problem than dressing up. You will never be too dressed, but you can be too casual. So we communicate the wrong things. We, we communicate that this is, a, this is easy. This is fun. This, well, it's great joy, great blessing, great satisfaction. But it doesn't come under the category of fun. It's something different. It's a different genre. And I think, I think we have to educate one another, re-educate one another very deliberately. And it will take some doing now because you're going against the stream. Our culture is casual. We're all egalitarian so that we think Jesus is just one of us. Just one of us. No, he's not just one of us. He is God. Which is why I think in the Bible, nobody ever tells God, I love you. Have you noticed that? But you say, you'll tell, you'll tell your wife you love her and she'll tell you I love you. But nobody in the Bible ever, you never have the, word, the verb love, a have in Hebrew or agapao in Greek, uh, with God as the object of the verb and first person subject, not once. And, you know, but we've reduced it to a Valentine's Day relationship. No, it's not. We're not equals. We're not peers. He is enthroned in heaven. And I am on earth. We live in two different realms. And it's only by grace that we can relate. And that drives me to my knees. It doesn't get me to put my chest out. Aren't? Isn't God lucky to have me? Really? But that's how many of us are. Hmm. All right. Um, the distinction between uh, corporate, corporate Old Testament worship, or no, uh, First Testament worship. Um, it's okay. I, will, I won't legislate that you have to do that. <laughs> Just, it's where I am at. <laughs> yeah. Um, where it was based on a location and people came to yeah. were invited into the audience. Yeah. And then and then with the tearing of the temple curtain. Yeah. So the place of worship, you know, becomes the heart of men. Yeah. Then 
then prostration um, isn't strictly location-based. It becomes mobile, but, but it should still be internal and also be mental. And so I, I hear what you're saying in terms of yeah. the, the glibness of worship yeah. many times. Um, but if we keep from, is, is there a danger of dichotomy between the Sunday morning and the every day? Like you've mentioned, it's yeah. every day of the week. Yeah. But so how do we promote sacredness? I mean, and I guess that's a repetition of the previous question to yeah. a degree. But how do we promote sacredness without being accused of a dichotomy between every, what should be every day in the life of every believer yeah. and, and superimposing our own internal concept on other people yeah. in terms of what should happen at a corporate gathering of people who theoretically should all be worshipers within their heart. Exactly. And, and not, why do we say within their heart? Within their whole bodies. This is First Testament, this is New Testament. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, no, therefore brethren by the mercy that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable, which is your the new translations all have spiritual act of worship. Come on. He just said bodies. Here's where the old King James had it right. And if you've read the Greek of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, you know it is, which is your reasonable act of service, vasseldom to God. And this is the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your inner being, with your whole be with, 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 with your inside, with your whole being, and with all your resources, everything that belongs to you, everything devoted to God. There is no dichotomy in first or New Testaments between the life we live in the world and the life we live in the presence of God. What we need, why we need the special moments. I mean, there are concentric circles of sanctity, physically and also temporally in terms of time. Every day is holy. It always has been. It was for, the, for, for sanctified Israelites, every day was holy. The Sabbath is holy in a particular sense. And the moment when the community is gathered is holy in an even more particular sense. Why do we need that? So that we gather as a holy community to remind us that we go out as that transformed community being sanctifying influence in the world in which we live. And I think that's how we've got, that's why it's important for us to gather regularly in the presence of God corporately to be reminded that all of life is holy, not just 11 o'clock Sunday morning, but to be recharged for the sacred work of combining out in the field or catching the chickens that are going off to market or whatever else. Whatever. It is all doing God's work for him. So I think it, it's easy for us. I mean, it's commonly thought that there's such a dichotomy between old and new. Even... My good friend John Piper, 
In the Old Testament, his word, worship was external and liturgical. In the New Testament, it is internal and spiritual. And I say, really? It's both in both. It's time to fill the ditch between the Testaments. Life in relationship with God is the work of the Spirit of God who's been around from the beginning. And I think we need to, we need to grasp that. <laughs> it's way off. Oh, now they're coming. Ray. We've got time. We'll take these last two, and then we'll probably have to wind it down here. Thank you, Dr. Block. I really appreciate your presentation. Um, yeah, so my question is... Um, yeah, so I appreciate the uh, characterization of, of worship they have and the paradigm for, uh, uh, for worship that, that you have here. And, I, uh, and it seems that, that that would make a very good characterization of, of worship uh, prior to the coming and ministry of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was wondering, uh, with the... Con- with the arrival of Jesus and his ministry and the ministry of the Spirit, you know, does it make any kind of decisive the difference to the dynamics and paradigm of worship, right? So what I have, have in mind is that, um, you know, Jesus introduces um, God as Father to us, mm-hmm. right? So yes, it is true that um, God remains king, but at the same time, uh, that, that sovereign king has now become our father in uh, Jesus Christ as well, right? And God gives us the spirit of sonship yeah. so that we relate yeah. to God, not merely as king and creator, but also as father. Now, worship surely is nothing less than, than, than what you have yeah. said. Um, you know, this um, audience with a sovereign king, yeah. right? Worship is certainly nothing less than that, but I was also wondering with the coming of Christ, does it uh, make worship also something immensely more than that? Well, let me give you a verse from the First Testament, Deuteronomy 14, your favorite text. It's the food laws No, I don't call this the food laws. I call this the invitation to eat at the Lord's table. It's amazing what happens when you see it. Look at how it starts. Chapter 14. I don't have the Hebrew here, but it may be in my head. Look how chapter 14 starts. Sons you are to the Lord your God. Really? Verse 2, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people, his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And I come to the New Testament and I ask, what's new? The people who were in right relationship with God were adopted as his sons. Then, just as now. 
Now, what happens in the light of Christ, we know how it worked. They didn't have the revelation of Christ. He hadn't come yet. And, you know, so with hindsight, we know how it worked. They knew that it worked. But they didn't have all the revelation on how it worked. For in Christ, the heavenly reality has come down and the shadow institutions are gone. But when they perform the rituals of the shadow institutions in faith, with penitent, humble hearts, according to the revelation of God, the sacrifice of Christ was applied to them then. So I think we make far too much about the difference between their experience and our experience. They were sons of and daughters of God, exactly like we are. And they celebrated this relationship. But we should also remember that in the ancient world, both Old First and New Testament times, the notion of father was not daddy, primarily. Father-son relationships David is called my son. And he calls the Lord his father, Psalm 89. This is a suzerain vassal metaphor, just like king and servant. So that it starts out as a recognition of a difference in status. Father is responsible for the well-being of the son, just as the king is responsible for the well-being of his citizens. But the subjects and the son are responsible for doing the pleasure of the father, fulfilling the mission the father decides. So th those two concepts are actually much closer than we think. And so... Uh, uh, and I think both were in play before and both are in play after. But then, most people aren't where I am on that. <laughs> One final question before we let uh, Dan off for the evening. This is perhaps more of an observation than a question. <laughs> seems to me from what we've been saying tonight that uh, evangelicals have a lot of work to do to recover a balance between the amount of attention that we pay to our singing and to our reading and our praying. And I wonder if worship leaders spent as much, paid as much attention to preparing for prayer and scripture reading as we do for our worship teams on Sunday morning, if it would make a huge difference in our worship. Uh, the average worship team, I would say, probably spends about at least an hour a week preparing to do the music that we do. Do we come anywhere close to that with praying or reading? Yeah. Huh. Wow, That's a, that, that is a fabulous question. But we need to be aware that in our world, 
we have put the music on a pedestal that it has never had before in terms of its dominance. That we would call the music minister the minister of worship, I find shocking. And with my understanding of worship as an audience with God, that comes primarily through the, the word that God gives to us. So, so that's, that, that to me is a problem. But the other thing is, we, we, have you ever studied how much music was part of tabernacle worship? Zero. At least from the record. There isn't a single hint of music. The closest you get is blowing the shofar, calling people to worship. Closest you get. Now, they were singing spontaneously after the Red Sea. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. They were singing all over. But that's spontaneous outburst. That's not a regular worship event. Or out in the harvest, they'd sing about the harvest. They sang all the time. People sing. To be human is to sing. But there's nothing about uh, organizing worship, planning worship, in corporate worship until you get to David. And it's connected then with a temple. And now we've really become formal because God has a permanent resting place. And so it becomes then an important part but not like what we have made it. So this is why in my book, I mean, that book comes out of the course I taught at Southern Seminary, and I've taught it at Wheaton as well. But the first time I taught the class at Southern Seminary, about 70 students, was totally elective, but half of them were theologians and half of them were music in, in the music school. And the, the musicians expected this to be a, a course on an Old Testament scholar talking about music. We didn't get there until, chap, uh, until the ninth or tenth week. Because there's lots to talk about before we get to the music. And I, again, I'm not anti-music. I come from a very musical family. My wife comes from a very musical family as well. We do music out of all proportion to what you know, our numbers are as Mennonites, as you know. We do music. And so I'm not... What troubles me is our preachers have so little interest in music. They have no aesthetic for what's appropriate, and they say that's somebody else's business. And on the other hand... Our musicians have so little interest in the, in the ministry of the word. That's a problem. It's a huge problem. We've professionalized everything. And so we need to get together and integrate it so that our musicians are reading uh, guidebooks that preachers are using and vice versa. Uh, Worship is all of life, so that in, in the book we talk about life as worship first, and then when we finally get together, it's the ordinances first. 
How do you become an acceptable worshiper to God? This is not y'all come. Worship is not for, not everybody can worship acceptably to God. For the pagan out there, the only acceptable worship to God is God be merciful to me, a sinner. And for us to gear worship to make pagans feel at home is a problem. They should always feel welcome, but they should never feel at home. Did you hear that? They should feel out of place, but they should wish I were at home here. That's what we want. Give them a hunger and thirst for what we're experiencing. And so... uh, so uh, this is a countercultural conversation that happens in corporate worship. And we, we ought to be applying that to our prayers and our, uh, the way we do our offering. Everything, it, it is all sacred activity done for the glory of God. So I, I, I'm not against any thing in particular, I'm for everything that is appropriate and that has the dignity uh, in keeping with the occasion. So, anyhow. All right. N- enough said. Well, thank you so much. And let's show our appreciation once again with a final round of applause. This has been very special. Thank you, Dan. If you came in late and would like a a handout of the outline of most of what was on the slides, I have some extra copies here. You can pick one up for me before you leave. Uh, Other than that, have a good evening, a good night, and uh, wish you all the best. Take what you've heard and uh, be uh, be good proclaimers of what we have learned here this evening.